this is the first of a two-part series. Okay, so this week and next week, so don't miss next week, come back for the second part. And the series is called From Prison to Power. From Prison to Power. And we're not kind of talking about a kind of worldly power in the sense of, you know, becoming dominant or taking authority or getting voted in as prime minister or the president. We're talking about kingdom power. Moving from prison to kingdom power. So this first part, uh, part one, uh, if you like, has also got a title, which is simply this. Where's your attention? Where's your attention? I wonder if you have immediate uh, response to that. Some of you, your attention is maybe on Facebook or something right now or Instagram. Um, I'm hoping the intention will be here at the front. Who knows? But actually, obviously, this is a question asked much bigger than just this moment. It's your life. Where's your attention in your life right now? Where is it? Um, we, if you've been around HTB for a while, you might have seen this little diagram, but maybe you haven't, I don't know. But we have, uh, we chat about it in our staff teams and um, as clergy and as, as kind of pastors here. This is a volcano, if you can't tell, that's a, a volcano, a very good drawing of a volcano. And, uh, and you know, a lot of what we're doing here as a church is kind of, it spills out into the world. There's kind of alpha that Becca was just telling us about that, you know, obviously we want to impact our city, we want to impact our friends and our neighbours here in this city, but of course alpha is running across the globe. Millions of people have done alpha. There's the marriage courses. Millions of people have done the marriage courses. There's the Leadership College London. There's the Leadership Conference, which will be coming up with, you know, hundreds of people, thousands coming in from around the globe as well. All these things impact us and the people around us. And we're excited about that. But we know that all of that stuff won't flow. All that stuff won't carry the impact we long for it to have as we see the transformation of society and everything that we're working towards unless this piece down here, I guess the lava at the bottom of the volcano. Here we go. The pen's starting to go for it now. This lava, this represents worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. No, the church exists to worship God first and foremost. Everything else comes second, third, fourth, fifth. But first place, the church of God exists to worship God. You exist to worship God. And you're invited to be part of his church together here as we've been singing tonight in our worship. You're invited and you exist to worship God. And we know that this is the stuff that If this is red hot, and if we're connecting with God in conversation, in our prayers, in our intercessions, if we're worshipping him, if this stuff really is in first place, and the hotter, the more red hot this is, the more explosive all of this stuff will be. Without this, this is a waste of time and we may as well go home now. This is the first and foremost, worship and prayer. So we want to talk about that now, before we talk a bit more about the vision and the expectation next week in part two, in where we're going towards in 2018 as a community, right here in HTB. So that's what we're going to explore tonight, particularly, and I'm going to lean a little bit more into worship. Sometimes we'll lean, and often much more into prayer. Both things coexist, and they both exist in the passage we're going to look at tonight. But I'm going to particularly lean into worship. So I don't know if you look like anybody. I don't know if you've uh, ever been mistaken for somebody else. You know, someone's looked at you, uh, whatever. And so maybe sometimes, sometimes you might look like somebody who's a bit famous. So people kind of take a second look at you and think, oh, you know, is that that person or not? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Um, I've, I've had sort of lookalikes. So one of, the, one of the people that sometimes people think I look a little bit like is Billy Elliot. Can you see that? 
a little bit of Billy. Um, Billy, I can do the ballet bit and all that sort of stuff as well. And it's that first and second and wherever we go from there, who knows? Um, do the ballet thing. In fact, once I made a, a film, a short film, a, a half an hour film. Some of you are filmmakers here. This was very low budget. Uh, but it was a half an hour film and it was based on Billy Elliot, but it was called Bible Billy Elliot. And it was how Billy Elliot, it was a sequel and it, he was already a ballet dancer and then he became a preacher and how awkward that was with his father and all those sort of things. So it was quite fun. I liked that. But actually, um, I, I, I've actually been stopped on the street before because people did mistake me for a guy called Tim Henman. Um, so... <laughs> Some of you might know Tim Emman if you're, if you're like a tennis fan. He commentates on Wimbledon now. And, you know, growing up, all of us as we were kind of growing up, most of us, you know, similar age bracket. You know, Tim Emman was the, the shining light of British tennis, you know, number one. And he gave hope that the kind of the, the desperate needs and the kind of the dark hour of British tennis might come alive again. And, you know, we all got really excited when he kind of battled his way through to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, which is about as far as he got, or semifinals one year or something. You know, obviously now it's kind of like Andy Murray's kind of gone and smashed it and we all think we should all be number one. But... But Tim Hemman kept this alight. And, uh, and so I loved Tim Hemman as well. I'd do all the kind of the fist pumps and all that. And I sort of, you know, I, I thought, I'm going to learn tennis. And I never had any lessons. Um, I just watched Tim Hemman. So I thought, I'll watch Tim Hemman. I'll see how he does it. So my serve looked a bit like Tim Hemman. My forehand looked like Tim Hemman. Um, and I even tried to kind of sort of copy, mimic some of his kind of, you know, the way he just did things. Even like, just like the little fist pump whenever I got a point in tennis. And... Um, I took it to some extremes. Some of you, I think, will know what I mean, but maybe I'll be on my own here. Um, has anyone here got an edge of competitiveness? Um, and to fuel their competitiveness, they really like start commentating their way through games. Anyone do that? No, no, it's just me. Oh, I am on my own. Okay, thanks. But it's like, you know, when I'm actually playing with tennis with a friend, partly it's the sports psychology. I'll be, you know, I'll do a great forehand. I'll go, oh, and Henman whips a forehand across the court and smashes Rosetsky out of the water. You know, that was the time, Henman Rosetsky. So I kind of commentate my way through. I think you're looking at me like I'm mad or something. But that would keep me going and, and get competitive. And there was one occasion I was on a tennis court down in Cornwall and a remote area of Cornwall and I was playing with this friend and I was commentating and pretending to be Tim Hemman and I, you know, I'd set him up as Andre Agassi or something like that and so I was, I was commentating to kind of you know, get myself a bit of psychology on kind of digging at his shots and stuff and you know, off I went and, and as we were playing I became aware of this little kind of about eight year old boy standing by the side of the court outside the, the kind of the wire mesh hands on the wire mesh looking at me wide eyed like totally like in a mouth open everything. Then, then he disappeared and he appeared back with a pen and a piece of paper in his hand. And, um, and so, so we were playing away and he respectfully waited until we kind of, you know, changed ends. Now we went to get some water and we were taking a little break and he came onto the court and he walked up to me and he says, could I have your autograph please? Now I don't know what you would have done in that moment. Um, I decided to go with it. I just thought... Why not? Why not? I mean, this lad, it's his dream come true. There's Tim Hemman playing on his local court and he's going to be telling all his mates and I don't want to burst his bubble. There was so much hope in him. So I'm like, oh yeah, no, no problem at all. So I just went like, you know, all the best, Tim Hemman. And he kind of grabbed it and he ran off and he was so, so excited. And I know some of you are thinking, Pete, you're a pastor. You just lied to him. And I don't know, if you're here tonight, I'm really sorry if you happen to be here or if you're watching online. I don't know if it's better to have done that or to burst your bubble now. I don't know. Anyway, who knows what was going on? But that was a moment. So I pulled off that, you know, it was like, I was like being like Tim Hemman. He thought I was. And of course, my attention had been on Tim Hemman. 
I had, I had watched and learned and I'd kind of become more and more like him just as I was watching him. So much so that that boy thought I was him and I've been stopped on the streets on several occasions, not because I've been playing tennis on the streets to try and be like Tim Hen, but because people have thought, oh, are you or are you not? But whatever captures your attention fills your mind and you move towards it. Whatever captures your attention. So as a kind of competitive lad trying to be a tennis player, moving up, I was captured by Tim Hemman. Filled my mind in the way that I was playing tennis and therefore I began to play tennis just like him. Never as good as him, unfortunately. But here's the question, where's your attention? Where's your attention? Because the answer to that question will determine your experience and encounter in worship and prayer. If your attention is turned to him, to God, you're more likely to fill your mind with the things of him. To set your mind on things above. Set your affections on things above. And as you turn your attention to him, you will turn your mind to him and you will move towards becoming like him. That's how it works. So where's your attention? Is your attention on him or is it somewhere else? Is your attention floating in a different space or is your attention upon him? Was your attention on him tonight when you walked through the doors? Or has it been somewhere else and you're wrestling even to be in this space? Where's your attention? Well, I want to learn, we want to learn together something from uh, Acts chapter 16. That's the passage we're going to look at really briefly. Acts chapter 16. And it's one of my favourite chapters in the Bible. absolutely love it. I love the whole of Acts because it's the story of God's exploits and what's going on as the Holy Spirit fills people, empowers them and sends them into all that he has got for them. So it's a brilliant book. And as we get to chapter 16, I just want to set the context before I read a couple of verses. Paul and Silas are kind of travelling around telling people about God. They've met with God, they've been filled with the Spirit, and now they're moving around. They're healing people, they're seeing people get saved, things are kicking off. I I heard just this morning, um, I was in another church this morning, um, visiting because my nephew was getting baptised, and so I went down there, uh, amazing to be there. And somebody in the congregation said, oh I was at Focus last year, and my son-in-law got totally and utterly healed in the healing rooms of um, ME which was just totally incredible. Um, had been struggling for a long time with it, and then literally over, like, literally over that prayer, boom, and it's totally fine ever since. Absolutely incredible. And that's the sort of thing that Paul and Silas were seeing. They were walking in this stuff. They were you know, seeing even more God breaking up around them, breaking out around them. And as they were uh, hanging out and spending time just impacting everything around them with the fullness of, of God who they were carrying by his Holy Spirit, They come across this slave girl, a girl who's owned by some other people. And she's being oppressed by what the Bible says, an evil spirit. There's a spirit in her. And one of the things the spirit is doing through her is able to speak to people about their future. Like kind of seeing into the future for other people. So she's like fortune telling for people. And her owners are making a whole load of cash out of this. Because you know they sell her, she belongs to them. So they're making money out of her affliction by this spirit. And Paul and Silas meet this girl and end up just casting this spirit out. Boom, just like that, gone. But along with that goes her ability to tell the future. And so her owners are not very happy about it. They're like, oh, hold on a second. We, we, you know, we were making money out of this and you've just taken our income away from this slave girl who we were like making our cash out of. 
And so they stir up a crowd against Paul and Silas. And everyone starts um, you know, hurling insults. This crowd becomes like a mob around them. And eventually Paul and Silas get taken to authorities. And, um, and they, they kind of levy all these kind of accusations against Paul and Silas. And as they're there, then these, the authorities say, right, these guys need beating. So they strip them, they beat them, they flog them, and they throw them in prison. What started out as a great day for Paul and Silas because they were full of faith and they were seeing healing and this amazing deliverance happened. Suddenly you might think this has gone horribly wrong and this is a really bad space to be. It's where we pick it up. Uh, let's have a look at what it says. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. About midnight. I don't know if you'd had a day like that, where would your attention be? I mean, it could be the fact that you're in stocks, like you're locked up. Not only are you in the inner cell where the deepest criminals would be kept because that was like in through all the doors in the inner cell where no one could get to and no one could get out of. It was like the safest place to keep them. They're locked away deep in this prison that is, you know, not a great place to be. Prisons even today are not great places to be. But can you imagine in those days, in the stocks, they've been beaten, they've been flogged. What about their attention? Where is their attention? Could it be on all of those things? No. We read this. About midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Their attention was on God. Where's your attention? Where's your attention? Regardless of the circumstance. And this was like a really bad circumstance, wasn't it? Can you imagine being thrown into the inner prison, into the inner jail? This is really bad. The circumstances were terrible, but their attention was on God. Sometimes we can face circumstances that are not good. Our work is high pressure. Relationships are kicking off. There's all kinds of things going on. Those can be really pressurized circumstances. Where's your attention in those moments? Some of you are in that right now. But sometimes our circumstances aren't even as bad as that, and yet our attention wanes. Maybe it's just that the worship team are not singing the right song And we don't like that song, so our attention wanes. It can be as simple as that in terms of our circumstances. But in these intense circumstances, you can see a couple of things demonstrated so obviously in Paul and Silas. There's expectation and confidence in them. There's expectation and confidence in them. I love this sense in which they're like, do you know what? We might be hidden away. It might be midnight, the darkest. This like the night is closed in. This is like the darkest moment of, of probably some people's experience of life, being in prison at midnight, having been beaten in the stocks, and yet there they are, their attention on Jesus. Their expectation is that he's going to meet with them. Their expectation is that God will be with them in the midst of every single circumstance. And their response to him is to worship him. I love it. Thank you for being on the front row. I, love, I always have a saying of, um, about the front row. And this is particularly true of the 4.30. And perhaps the 6.30 will catch up. Take that as a little challenge. A little nudge. 
But like, you know, there are guys in, there are a whole group of the teenagers who just come and stand along the front here and they just go for it in the worship. They take every moment, every chance to set up a mosh pit. Um, they're going for it in there and, and they're just in, they're going after something. And one of the sayings I've often said is like the anointed seats, they're at the front. The front row is the most anointed space to sit in in the whole of the church. Did you know that? It's true. I know some of you don't believe me. In fact, there's no way I can prove it and it's not biblically true, is it? God is everywhere. Don't worry. Don't be condemned if you're in the back seats. It's okay. It's all right. He can still bless you where you are. But there's something in that, isn't there? In terms of leaning in, going after something and saying, do you know what? My attention is here. I want to be right where the action is. Get me in the mix and I'm going to be right up there. I want to throw myself at this thing. If you're going off to a gig and you kind of want to see a band that you absolutely love, and if you're really passionate about that band, you're going to get there early so you can get the best. You can, get, you can run in. You watch fans running into stadiums so they can get as close to the front as they can. Why? Because they want to be in the midst of that experience. They want to be absolutely going off that. Their attention is 100% on that band. That's what it's all about for them. And yet there can be sometimes for us, and I speak to myself as well, primarily, such a lethargy and such a like, well, take it as it comes. What would it look like for us to come expectantly, to have that sense, even if you don't like the front row, because there are no chairs there and you prefer the chairs, but to let the chairs like just sing with God's praises with an expectancy when we worship together. What would that look like for us as a community? How could we call that up? out of ourselves how could we wake up our spirits wake up our souls to say do you know what we want to respond to you God I'm coming with expectancy and I'm coming with confidence isn't it extraordinary that Paul and Silas had a confidence in God that though they were beaten though they were jailed though they were under extreme pressure from the authorities they had a confidence in God to keep singing and to keep praying and they weren't just doing that to themselves everyone in the prison were listening too this, is, this wasn't a quiet little prayer in the corner. This wasn't a silent moment before walking in. This was like obvious to everyone. They were listening at about midnight. There's a confidence. And do you know, attention and confidence fuel each other. So you turn your attention to God, you'll grow your confidence in him. Because as you meet with him, you'll recognize who he is what his plans are for your life. You'll see something extraordinary of who God is. It will inspire you. And confidence to boldly approach him will grow in you. And because of that confidence to boldly approach him, so your attention to him will grow. So if you make a choice to go after him and say, do you know what I want to set my attention in him? That attention will grow confidence. That confidence will grow your attention. The attention will grow confidence and the wheel will keep spinning as you go after that. And so there's this confidence in Paul and Silas that God is God. Regardless of the circumstance, they're ready to step in. One of the reasons I'm absolutely sure that they, they had that confidence is because they were absolutely full of the Holy Spirit. Only a few chapters before, the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost and the disciples are walking with a fullness and a boldness and a confidence that doesn't come just from them, just from their pure grit to push through, like a decision, I am going to worship today. Sometimes I think... That decision's a good decision. Sometimes it, it's, there's grit to say, do you know what? It's a circumstance. I don't get this, but I'm going to make a choice to go after that attention. And I want to worship. It's like, wake up my soul. It's like David declaring in the Psalms, come on, wake up my soul. I feel the pressure around me, but wake up my soul. And there's a choice for that attention. Do you know what? I think these disciples were displaying something of the joy and the bounty of God in their lives. 
No one was going to stop them worshipping and praying. They absolutely wanted to love God because they they knew and experienced his love by the power of his spirit at work in them. And as they walked around healing, saving, seeing people delivered, they were just seeing more and more the attention on God, the confidence in him and the spirit of God filling them up. So much so that they were worshipping him in spirit and in truth. No one was going to stop them. No one was going to stop them. There was this joy in them that was coming, full of the Spirit. It wasn't just pure grit to push through the prison experience, but it was an enjoyment of his presence, so much so that they couldn't stop worshipping him. And you know, joy spontaneously flows into praise. Joy spontaneously flows into praise. When we're excited about something, we see something, you know, just take the football, take a theatre, whatever it is, and you see something extraordinary happening in front of your very eyes, You just go up in a standing ovation. Joy pours. It flows into praise. And so when we're filled with his spirit, and that fruit of that spirit of of his, so many fruits, but that joy begins to well up within you because you're being filled with his spirit. So that joy will overflow in praise. And for some of us this evening, it may even be, look, I like the idea of front row Pete and get that and you should lean in and we should worship and make choice and wake up my soul but this is really hard I'm struggling then you need to be first on your knees asking for somebody to pray for you at the front at the end to be saying do you know Holy Spirit I need you I absolutely need you so often worship is connected to need when we recognize our need of God our worship of him increases that's why Mary broke the, the alabaster bar over, um, um, bottle over Jesus' feet. She knew that everything of her life was met in him. She was desperate and hungry for him. And so she gave everything to worship him. Come on your knees and let's worship him. I find it fascinating that they were singing away. Of course, worship is our whole life. It's not just our singing. It's not just our times here. But there's something intimate and very attention-giving when we join together, unified as his people, to sing to him. It's happened throughout the centuries that people, every culture has sung. Every culture has an expression of music. And here they are singing away, joined together. And there's something intimate and personal about that experience. So when we set our attention on him, just like Paul and Silas... It opens doors for you to walk into his power. When you set your attention on him, it will open doors extraordinarily for you to walk in his power. Let's carry on with a few verses. Suddenly, as they're worshipping, praying about midnight, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That would have been his punishment for losing the prisoners. So he was going to do it himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. I love that. You know, Paul and Silas could have just run. It would have been a great story for the church, wouldn't it? They could have just like upped and gone. They're like, you know, we were just worshipping and praying and then this earthquake, God shook the prison and we got freed and we ran out and now we're here, we're back, we're restored. And all the church would go, yes, that's amazing. What an incredible story. But Paul and Silas don't just run. They're right there. And their attention, because it's on God, catches the jailer. 
Because God's heart isn't just for them and their freedom, it's for the freedom of everyone around them. Did you notice that every single prisoner got free? It wasn't just Paul and Silas, everybody in the prison gets freed as a result of their worship and prayer. Did you notice that? And then their attention is to the jailer. Why? Because God's heart is for that jailer. And because their attention is on God, they see the jailer. They don't just run for their own freedom with their own story. They're going to take people on that story too. And the jailer, overwhelmed by all that's happened, having heard them singing and praying, recognising that these men are, are anointed by God, falls on his knees before them and says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And he goes on to give his life to Jesus. His whole family give their life to Jesus. He helps to tend to the wounds and the sores on Paul and Silas from their beating. The very person that put them into the inner cell ends up releasing them and freeing them and washing their wounds and tending to them. It's this moment of unlocking freedom that God breaks in in that worship and in that prayer. God breaks in and there's this unlocking freedom for everybody. Can you imagine what that would look like if we really got hold of it? If we really went into, into giving everything expectantly and confidently to worship God. And our worship wasn't just about us meeting with God, although that is wonderful. And being filled by His Spirit. But in our worship, in our prayers, the foundations of this very city would be shaken with the power of God. And the whole city, being shaken by the power of God, would sit up and recognise and see... Because they know that you are a worshipping, praying person. They see that we are a worshipping, praying community. What would that look like? If we just did a survey of church history, it would prove to you that great kingdom breakthroughs, any significant move of God, has right at the very centre of it, yearning worshippers who pray. Right at the very centre of it. And it's almost as if their worship and their prayers spill out to shake the very fabric of everything that everybody expects around them. So much so that people look and go, what must we do to be saved? It's the very foundation. It's the the heat from which this volcano can then explode into impacting the whole world. I believe that God wants to do a new move in our church of raising a whole new culture of worship I feel like this yearning this aching and creaking in my heart where it's like God is is saying I want you to discover something fresh something new that I'm doing today and I want you to step into it and as you worship and as you pray I'm going to unlock something that will bring freedom to all around. God's heart is for that here, now. And he invites you into it. I heard a prophetic word several years ago by a guy called Simon Pettit. And he referred to this passage. He began by going, about midnight. And I think this word is still alive, even now. I just sense God's presence, even as we're in this place right now but it's a sense of about midnight about midnight we're in that place right now we're in that place right now it's about midnight it's a dark moment 
where many, most in the world, just think that they've locked the church away into the inner cell. That this has no relevance and should not be impacting anything around us. Let's lock the church away into the inner cell where surely it cannot escape. Surely it cannot make a difference. Surely it cannot do anything because it's locked away in the inner cell and it's about midnight. Right now, prophetically, it's like about midnight. It's like that it's, it's, it's pressure and it's, will the church survive or not? Will it ever get out of that prison space or not? What will happen to it? And one of the questions is, where's the church's attention then? Where's our attention? Where's your attention? It's about midnight. And God is calling us to turn our attention to him, to be heard by the world. World, distant cries, distant prayers, distant songs that just began begin to get heard by everyone around as they start perceiving something's happening in the inner cell. What is that thing in the inner cell? What's going on in that space? And as the church step in in worship and prayer, as we get renewed by the power of the Spirit filling us, as we step into that space, God's going to move and shake up everybody's expectations. And if it's just about midnight now, we need to be asking the question, where's your attention? Where's your attention? Because we need it to be on God so that people like the jailer can fall on their knees and say, how can I be saved? They know exactly where to go because they know where the worshipping, praying community is. They've heard it. They've heard it. They've heard the call. They've heard something going on in the inner cell that most people have forgotten about. And they know that the shaking is happening because of what's happening in that space. And as we worship and as we pray, chains will be unlocked. Doors will be flung open, just as they were right here. It's about midnight. Will you be found singing? Will you be found praying? It's about midnight. And there are sounds rising from the inner cell. There's some great new stories to tell of. Some really exciting things that are happening. We'll share a few more next week. The sounds are coming, but it's about midnight, and will you be found singing? It's a time for us to move from prison to power. And that move belongs to the worshippers, to the prayers, to those who, regardless of those circumstances, will turn their attention to him and press in after all he's got for them. Where's your attention? Where's your attention?